0: Have you ever felt misunderstood? Of course you have, maybe 10 minutes ago. <laughs> well, we've all experienced that. So what can we learn from Bible characters who faced what we've faced coming up? The Most Misunderstood Women of the Bible. We've also got a great lineup of Bible questions we'll be answering. And you don't want to miss Charlie Dyer's devotional, A Room with a View. That's all ahead on this week's edition of The Land and the Book. It's the program that takes you to Israel and back. I'm John Geiger. Good to check in with you, Charlie. And I'm wondering... If there are folks who listen to us right now who've wondered what it would really take for them to learn Hebrew, maybe you'd love to explore the Bible in one of its original languages or or be able to better communicate when you actually visit Israel.
1: Yeah, John, and to help people get started, our friends at Life and Messiah invite them to attend a free introductory Hebrew lesson with experienced Hebrew teacher Melissa Briggs. This group lesson over Zoom is suitable both for those interested in biblical Hebrew and for those interested in modern Hebrew. Melissa is passionate about making the riches of the Hebrew language accessible to everyone. To sign up for this free lesson, all you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. Be sure to sign up today and begin your journey of learning Hebrew. I wish we had a drum roll sound effect that
0: would play right here. Why? This is the 666th program of the land and the book. Imagine 666 of them. And we want to start by acknowledging that achievement and perhaps by asking a silly question. Is there any prophetic significance to this being our 666th program, Charlie?
1: Well, thankfully there is no prophetic significance to this being uh, number 666 for the program, though it is interesting how unsettled people get about that number. John, I knew a theology professor who had to get new license plates for his car and the new plates included the number 666. Now, he knew the students would make fun of him, so he asked the people at the DMV if he could get different plates, and he was told the only way he could exchange them is if somehow the new plates got damaged. He walked out of the DMV's office and and, and returned a short time later to report that his new plates had become twisted and bent, and he didn't elaborate on how it happened. (laughs) But I found it interesting that those kind of things do happen, and uh, it's interesting that several current events that surfaced this week have somewhat of a prophetic twist to them. So maybe that's the connection to this program. Well, all right. In that vein, let's
0: explore our first current event story. The United Nations is apparently working on an agreement that includes global financial reforms in preparation for a summit of the future that'll be held September, 2024. So what exactly is to be included in this agreement? And could this somehow relate to the prophetic significance of 666 in the Bible?
1: Well, the proposals focus on a global digital agreement and reforms to the international global financial architecture. Uh, One proposal is to set up a group that would guide the entire financial system of the world to help it align with the U.N.'s priorities in the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. Now, ultimately, that could involve integrating the G20 with the United Nations to form what they say is something of an Economic Security Council. Now, I need to say here, this doesn't directly have any prophetic significance, at least the prophecies in the Bible or or the Bible's description of 666. You know, in Revelation 13, 666 is related to the future Antichrist mm-hmm. and represents the number that corresponds to his name. It's a visible mark of allegiance to this future ruler, and it'll be required before someone will be allowed to buy or sell. So in that sense, it'll place economic pressure on individuals to conform. Now, we've already seen nations, including our own, exercise greater control over individuals. You know, think about a driver's license, photo ID, passport. Uh, you have to have a credit score, you know, and it determines to a large extent how much money you can borrow and at what rate. Uh, there's a push to develop a digital currency. You know, China's extended that even further with its social credit system that rates people on their behavior and trustworthiness, and which can be used to bar those deemed troublesome from a lot of activities, including travel. Now, someday, could the future world ruler, uh, the one we call the Antichrist, take advantage of all the current technology and what the UN is doing to extend his control and try to coerce people to obey? Well, he could, but the Bible says it'll require individuals to consciously accept that sign of loyalty that will involve the number 666 or the name of the leader, which will be displayed on on their hands or forehead. So like a lot of things happening today, God could use the push at the UN along with the corresponding technological developments taking place all around us to set the stage for the arrival of the Antichrist. And evil, corrupt governments today have already started using technology to limit freedom of their citizens. So that's a reality, but it's not the same as saying it's the fulfillment of the prophecy of 666. And that's not going to happen until after the rapture of the church.
0: And that's a very important distinction. Well, in an apparent coincidence, this past week also included a proposal by an Israeli member of the Knesset to divide the Temple Mount into Jewish and Muslim sections. Is there any prophetic significance
1: to his proposal, and is such a division even possible? You know, when I read this article, John, I thought of our time up on the Temple Mount just uh, a week or so ago. Well, the proposal was made by a, a member of parliament from Prime Minister Netanyahu's own party, And he's saying the goal is to split the control of the Temple Mount into two sections. Uh, The southern third, where the Al-Aqsa Mosque is located, would be given to the Muslims, while the northern two-thirds, which includes the area around the Dome of the Rock and the area just north of it, would come under Israel's control. Right now, such a division seems impossible. I mean, Muslims universally oppose the idea. They claim the entire area for themselves, and the site has remained under the control of the Islamic walk from Jordan. Now, if there's any prophetic significance to this proposal, it would be that this is perhaps the first time a proposal has surfaced that focuses on the Jewish people taking control of the area where the Jewish temple once stood. It seems virtually certain that the temple proper stood, I think, right where the Dome of the Rock now stands, though there is an alternative proposal that places the temple just north of the Dome of the Rock. Now, what we do know prophetically is that a temple will be built during the coming tribulation period, and Uh, that it's going to be built where the Orthodox Jews believe the earlier temple stood. In Revelation 11, John is told to measure the temple building and the altar, but to exclude the outer court, which will be given over to the Gentiles. So could a future leader propose something similar to what's now being proposed by this Knesset member? Divide the temple mount area in two, allowing the Jews to rebuild their temple while having the outer area remain in the hands of non-Jews. Something like that will happen in the future, Uh, But we do know that, at least right now, it would not be willingly accepted by Muslims in that region.
0: This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio, our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Gaker. U.S. influence in the Middle East appears to be on the decline.
1: Why is this happening,
0: and what countries are rushing in to fill the vacuum being
1: created? Well, part of the reason it's taking place is economic. The U.S. spent billions of dollars trying to bring about peace in the Middle East with only marginal success part of the reasons military military. The U.S. is ceding its leadership in the Middle East to try and project power in the Far East. The administration sees China as the bigger global threat. But as the U.S. pulls back from the Middle East, other countries are rushing in to try to fill the vacuum we've created. Russia, Turkey, China, and Iran all harbor plans to expand their footprint in the region. Last week, China's president met with Palestinian President Abbas to discuss China's role in the Middle East. Abbas has apparently given up on the U.S. as the broker of peace with Israel. Uh, This past Wednesday, the deputy foreign ministers of Russia, Iran, Turkey, and Syria met in Kazakhstan. Uh, The goal of that meeting was to help bring Turkey and Syria closer together under the watchful eyes of Russia and Iran. And Iran could also be responsible for some of the recent terrorist incidents within Israel just this past week uh, that were done by Hamas and Islamic Jihad, but under Iran's direction. The U.S. is apparently negotiating with Iran right now, trying to reach what some are calling a mini-nuclear summit to get them to hold off on enriching uranium to a level that could be used for nuclear weapons. But in return, Iran would get some sanction reliefs, and some believe they're also trying to get an agreement from the U.S. to pressure Israel into not attacking Iran. Now, these negotiations are all troubling to Israel especially since we seem to be removing our ability to more directly influence what other countries do in the Middle East. And that could make the region far more dangerous in the coming years. We're already starting to see tensions rise between Israel and the Palestinians, and we'll try and explore that in a little more detail next week.
0: Well, we end our focus on current events and prophecy with a report about the IRS, of all things. Even when the apocalypse comes, The IRS apparently has a contingency plan for collecting taxes. How specifically do they plan to accomplish this, and will it work?
1: According to a recent Jerusalem Post article, the IRS does have an apocalypse plan to make sure U.S. citizens pay their taxes, even during a worldwide catastrophe. Uh, The plan itself is called the Continuity-slash-Cooperations Plan, and was initially developed in the 1980s. It's been periodically updated since then. Now, according to the plan, the IRS could resume mission essential tasks like collecting taxes within 12 hours following a catastrophic event like a nuclear war. Uh, Different teams would be available to provide general leadership in different locations and different facilities have been identified where the work could continue. Apparently, a U.S. sales tax would be implemented. Uh, They've also stored up $2 billion in $2 bills that could be placed in circulation to keep the economy afloat. But don't get too comfortable assuming the government has everything planned for every possible emergency. Apparently, a pandemic like COVID wasn't anticipated, and uh, that caused a backlog of over 10 million paper returns at the end of 2021. So uh, the best plan for making it through an apocalypse, I think, is to place your trust in Christ now, as uh, Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, so that he can rescue you from the coming wrath
0: current events from a prophetic lens today on The Land and the Book. We're coming up. It's a conversation about the most misunderstood women of the Bible. Stay with us. Few of us feel deeply known and understood all the time worse, many of us have endured long, painful seasons of misunderstanding in which the people around us have questioned, or worse, judged our motives and actions. This problem is nothing new. In fact, women have faced it since the dawn of time. Coming up, a conversation about the most misunderstood women of the Bible. You're listening to The Land and the Book. I'm John Gager, and because our program is focused on people and places in the Middle East, well, join me now for this quick thought. Well, it's true. Most Jewish people have been told they cannot both be Jewish and a Christian. How do you address that? Let's ask Levi Hazen, who's executive director of Life in Messiah. How do we address that?
2: Well, John, this is really a tragic teaching uh, that's been passed down from generation to generation. It comes from a twisting of the truth. Many from both the Christian and the Jewish communities have contributed to this misunderstanding. Uh, For example, the Christian community once taught that Jewish people had to reject any ties to their Jewish roots in order to believe in Jesus. Adherents of Judaism today teach that Jewish people need to renounce any ties to Jesus if they're going to call themselves Jewish. Uh, But in my opinion, both communities are missing the mark here on what it means to be Jewish. According to the Bible, being Jewish comes through birth, through a lineage, not a belief system. Therefore, whether a Jewish person is secular, messianic, or an adherent to rabbinic Judaism— they retained their Jewish identity because it was given at birth and cannot be lost or given up. Hmm. So when I encounter this objection, I try to help my Jewish friend understand that I'm not asking them to give up their ethnic identity. It's actually impossible. They can be Jewish and believe in Jesus, as many Jewish people do today.
0: Well, that's a great reminder. Thank you for bringing that to our attention. Levi Hazen, Executive Director of Life in Messiah. Mary DeMuth is an author of more than 40 books, a podcaster at Pray Every Day, an artist and a literary agent with a passion for the Lord. She and her husband Patrick have three adult children and reside near Dallas, Texas. Hey, we're so glad you joined us today, Mary. Thank you.
3: So great to be here. Thanks for having me on, John. Well, everybody, men and
0: women, knows what it's like to be misunderstood. But our conversation today is uniquely focused on 10 women in the Bible who were misunderstood in their own time and and maybe still are. Uh, so who's the first Bible character that comes to mind for you, Mary?
3: Well, it makes it pretty easy because it's Eve. <laughs> She's like one of the first characters of the Bible. So um, we have a lot of misunderstanding around who she was, and especially when we're talking about blame, Um we forget to read the actual text. And in the actual text, it says that as she's being tempted, her husband is standing alongside of her and is not saying a word. And so when people level all the blame on her, and I'm not saying she doesn't have blame. She absolutely has blame. But when they level you know, 80% of it on her and 20% on Adam, they're not really reading the text. The text says they were both there and Adam didn't do anything to stop it or change it.
0: Well, there are minor misunderstandings that we all experience day to day, and then there are the really huge misunderstandings that some have to endure. That said, what kind of a a grid did you use to choose the 10 women in this book?
3: Well, first of all, I prayed about it, which is usually the best way for me when I'm starting to write a book, is just to ask the Lord what direction. And then I have been rapid reading the Bible now for a couple years. Well, I'll read it in two months or three months, and in that practice, stories just start jumping out to me. And these were the 10 stories that when I read them, I was like, wait a minute, all these things I thought I knew about these women, actually, when I read just the boring, not that it's boring, but just the plain text without any you know, commentary or anything, I realized, wow, there's been some misunderstanding here.
0: Mary DeMuth joins us today on The Land and the Book. Welcome, if you just joined us. I'm John Gager. We're talking about the most misunderstood women of the Bible. Mary, in your chapter about Rahab, you write, what we need to remember about Rahab is her faith. And of course, that's validated by her mention in Hebrews Hall of Faith. That's chapter 11. But even today, it seems like we hear more about her being a prostitute than being a woman of faith. How do you explain that?
3: I think because we have a misunderstanding of what was going on during that time period, and really a lot of the ancient world, was if a woman did not have a spouse, there were very few economic ways for her to make a living. And so, not that this is the best way to make a living, because it's true. And um, definitely, you know, I'm not going to go out and become a harlot. So, definitely not the right thing to do. But Because it involves sex, I think we think more about that title. Whereas if you read the passage and what she did, she risked everything on something she heard. She didn't even experience the parting of the sea at the Jordan River. She didn't experience the victories that Israel had experienced, yet she still chose to believe that God was big and mighty and amazing. And that to me is so beautiful. And Jesus even talks about it. He says, blessed are those that don't see and still believe. And she's one of those.
0: I want you to choose another misunderstood character in scripture that you'd like us to meet. I mean, it's it's your choice. Take us wherever you want to go.
3: You know, I really want to talk about Phoebe because most of my readers who come back with this book said I didn't even know anything about her. And so, Let's talk about being overlooked in scripture. In fact, I learned this recently that a friend of mine who had gone to a very well-known seminary and other people have collaborated the story, that they went through a survey course of the book of Romans, and this person had to go through it twice, and both times they did Romans 1 through 15 and didn't do chapter 16. And chapter 16 is where Phoebe is and where many scholars believe that she, because she's commended by Paul, she is the one who most likely brought the book of Romans to Rome. And um, so talk about being overlooked even by Bible scholars. It's very frustrating to me. And to have brought a book of the Bible, you know, to bring a letter to a place, it meant in that time that you had to know it so well that you typically memorized it and you knew the intonation of the author so you could elocute it or perform it in the same way that the author had intended. So that's a pretty amazing mantle of responsibility on Phoebe.
0: The Most Misunderstood Women of the Bible. That's our conversation on the land and the book with guest Mary DeMuth. She's written more than 40 books and is a podcaster at Pray Every Day. Well, we live in a culture that almost worships youth and beauty. Few can measure up to the advertising models and moving stars, which takes us to the story of Leah in the Old Testament. You write directly to those who share her sense of hurt at not being one of the so-called beautiful ones. And I just got to quote you here. It's just lovely. Do not lose heart, O misunderstood one. Others' dismissal of your personhood cannot negate the very real truth of your belovedness. Made in the image of your Creator, you are loved and lovely. You are held and beheld. You are carried and cradled. You can rest in that truth. I think that's a message a whole lot of people need to hear. What kind of response do you get to these kinds of statements in the book, Mary?
3: A lot of people just need that. And the sad thing is, is that we need that reminder a lot, not only from the outside, but internally as well. I don't know if you're like me at all, but I tend to be kinder to strangers than I am to myself. My little self-critic is an angry little lady, and she's pretty mean. And um, so just that constant reminder of what we just need to hear the, the voice of God, that is opposite of the world's voice, which says, you are how you look. You are, whether you are an influencer or not, you are, your worth is based on exterior factors, like achieving things and things like that. When in reality, the word of God says, God sees not as a man sees, he looks at the heart. And so my prayer, you know, every year I get older, as we all do, my prayer is that, Lord, I would just pray that every year my soul would become more beautiful.
0: Mm -hmm. Introduce us to another character in the book that you'd like to to highlight for us.
3: Sure. Um, I think we miss Naomi a lot in the story of Ruth because Mm -hmm. Ruth is, uh, you know, she's kind of the highlight of the book of Ruth. Uh, The name is there too, Um, but Naomi gives us a beautiful picture of what it means to grieve and she gives full vent to her grief. She renames herself Mara, which means bitter. And I think in our world today, particularly after COVID, we have a lot of grief that is unprocessed and Naomi gives us a picture of what does it mean to grieve and and sit in it And then to move on. And so I'm really grateful for her story that she kind of lets us know that we don't always have to be happy, clappy all the time, and that there is a process of grief and that Jesus also, if I jump to the New Testament, Jesus grieves alongside us. He understands. That's one of the things I love about Jesus. He's an empathetic Savior who understands being misunderstood. He understands betrayal. He understands grief and loss, and he can come alongside us.
0: You know, I I think it's interesting that you've touched on Naomi. Um, I did my own personal Bible study in the book of Ruth. And my own conclusion, and it's just an opinion, is that the book of Ruth is more about Naomi even than Ruth. As significant Mm -hmm. as it is that Ruth is what the grandmother of uh, you know David or the Davidic line is through her and Christ again in that line. Sure, huge, huge stuff. But Naomi at the beginning of the book, as you've already pointed out, she's bitter. And I see the scene there where the women of the town say, isn't this Naomi? Isn't this Naomi? Mm -hmm. And she's just devastated. Well, in the end, when she's got that little baby on her lap, it's the women again who see and comment how God has been good to Naomi. It's like a bookend to the story. And again, I think maybe the story is just as much or more about Naomi. What do you think?
3: I agree. And if you do a deep dive, which you probably did in the Book of Ruth, the whole book is a chiasm, meaning it begins where it ends. And just as you said, you can see all these parallels. And a chiastic structure is where the middle of the story is the climax. And then everything kind of falls into place before and after that climax. And so you see that beautiful ending to the chiasm there. Yes, I agree. And I think, too, that what I I feel like she's the patron, patron saint of... <laughs> The middle of a story. Hmm. And I think a lot of us today, just to speak directly to listeners, is you are feeling really broken right now because your circumstances are dire. And you can't see the end of your story. And the thing that I've learned is what I have to do when I'm in those situations. First, I have to grieve. But second, I have to look backwards to the faithfulness of God through some other problem that I had and re-remind myself that God was good then and He will be good in the future. And He's good right now.
0: Amen. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with our guest, Mary DeMuth, who lives with her husband, Patrick, near Dallas. Well, all this talk about misunderstandings, and I can hear some listener asking, how do I correct these misperceptions? Do I try to defend myself, set the record straight, or does that only make me look guilty and fleshly? What's your counsel?
3: You know, I used to say one thing, you know, just don't defend yourself, but I actually trust the Holy Spirit in each person. And sometimes there have been times where the Lord has clearly said to me, This needs to be defended, and you need to rise up and defend yourself. There are other times where the Lord has clearly said to me, do not defend yourself. Let me be your defender. I am your PR manager. I will take care of you. This is a discipline that you need to walk through. So my encouragement is to know the voice of the Spirit within you and obey that, because I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all in this. I guess if I was going to default, it would be on not defending myself. But there have been times where the Lord's been very clear. Nope. Speak up.
0: No one, of course, was more misunderstood than Jesus. And it seems to me that that should sober us, inform us, and in a strange way, encourage us. Your thoughts?
3: I agree. And that's why I wrote the whole book. So I was having a conversation with someone and I said, I feel so misunderstood. And I was crying and all that. And she said to me, do you realize Jesus was the most misunderstood person who walked the earth? And I took that sentence and I reread the gospels with that in mind. And it just floored me because everywhere you look, if you look through that lens, you will see Jesus continually misunderstood, not only by religious leaders, which you know we see quite a bit but by his own friends, by his disciples, by the people closest to him. They did not get it. And so if Jesus understands misunderstanding, then he can walk alongside and shore us up when we're walking that same valley of misunderstanding as well.
0: In the 30 seconds we've got remaining, and it almost feels sacrilegious to do so, would you pray for a misunderstood woman who's listening to you right now?
3: Jesus, I lift up whoever feels really misunderstood right now, and I know the weight of that. I pray that you would come alongside and show them that you really, really understand. Bear the weight of that misunderstanding. Give her uh, a way forward, whether she should speak up or be quiet. Lord, I pray for good friends in her life who will speak over her, that she is loved and beloved. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. That's Mary DeMuth, who's written The Most Misunderstood Women of the Bible. A link to that at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Charlie Dyer is back after this break. It's interesting how much you can learn by listening to the questions that other people have. That's the experience we have every single week here on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. Questions and answers very much at the heart of what we're about to do. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, has his Bible open. But before we get to that very first question of this segment, here's a question for you. Have you ever wondered what it would take to learn Hebrew? Would you love to explore the Bible in one of its original languages or to be able to better communicate when you visit Israel?
1: Well, to help you get started, our friends at Life in Messiah invite you to attend a free introductory Hebrew lesson with experienced Hebrew teacher, Melissa Briggs. This group lesson over Zoom is suitable both for those interested in biblical Hebrew and for those interested in modern Hebrew. Melissa is passionate about making the riches of the Hebrew language accessible to everyone. To sign up for this free lesson, all you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org. Click on the Moody Radio logo and sign up. Be sure to sign up today and begin your journey of learning Hebrew. Well, believe it or not, today marks our
0: 666th broadcast here on the land of the book. And as a believer and a Bible student, you know that number is 666. So in that light, we thought it might be kind of fun to do a special prophecy edition of questions and answers. All right, here we go with question one. Will we be here when people have to take the mark of the beast, or will we be already raptured? And, What is the significance of 666 anyway?
1: Well, church-age believers will not be on earth when the Antichrist arises, so we won't be faced with having to take the mark of the beast. Now, I say that because the entire seven-year period when the Antichrist rises to power is the final 70th week of Daniel chapter 9, and that entire prophecy, it says, was for your people, that is the Jewish people, and your holy city, that's Jerusalem. Now, those who come to faith during that final seven-year period will be faced with this opposition and persecution, including not being allowed to buy or sell without this mark of allegiance. They're going to be persecuted, and many will be martyred for their faith. Now, in terms of the significance of 666, Revelation 13 says it's a physical mark. In fact, the Greek word used there is a word that refers to a stamp or an imprinted mark. It was actually used to describe branding put on horses. It will be placed in one of two prominent places, the passage says, on the right hand or on the forehead to show loyalty to the Antichrist, and it will be enforced by not allowing anyone to buy or sell without it, in essence, starving people into acceptance. Finally, the mark will take one of two forms. People will be able to choose the actual name of the Antichrist, it says, or they can choose the number that represents his name, the, the number there is 666. Now, we don't fully understand 666 right now, though many people have tried to come up with explanations, but it will make perfect sense to those living at that time. I do believe we know enough from this passage, though, to say it's not a credit card. It's not an implanted microchip. It's not something people will receive by accident. Uh, They will deliberately take this uh, because they'll be required to at that time to buy or sell. All right,
0: question two in our special prophecy edition from Ghani, who says, I'm baffled at Revelation 17, 15 and following. I thought that the harlot mentioned there, which is the false religion of the Great Tribulation and the beast, ten horns, are working together for the devil. How is it that in verse 16, it seems they go against each other?
1: Yeah, and I'm not sure if my answer is going to help you or frustrate you. (laughs) I say that because I've come to the conclusion that the Babylon in Revelation 17 is not a false religious system. God's interpretation of the harlot is found in the very last verse of the chapter, and there he identifies Babylon as a city. In fact, I'm convinced the Babylon in Revelation 17 and the one in Revelation 18 are identical, and they refer to the literal city of Babylon. Uh, It's pictured as an economic center that will dominate the Antichrist, who's the beast, and the ten horns, his allies, until they finally destroy the city near the end of the tribulation period. And God's the one who puts this thought into their hearts. To accomplish his destruction of the city and i think he does that in fulfillment of earlier predictions made about babylon in isaiah 13 and 14 and jeremiah 50 and 51 and in zechariah chapter 5. bob
0: wants to know do you know of a book that compiles all the old testament messianic prophecies
1: and i do and it's actually titled the moody handbook of messianic prophecy uh, it was edited by michael redelnick and ed bloom and it has several general articles on Messianic prophecy, and then it goes through every major Messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. Now, the book's over a thousand pages long, but it does break down into manageable chunks as it covers each of those passages. This is The Land and the Book,
0: Segment 3, Questions and Answers, a special prophecy edition today in our 666th program. But here's a question for you as you listen. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to learn Hebrew. Would you love to explore the Bible in one of its original languages or to be able to better communicate when you visit Israel?
1: Well, to help you get started, our friends at Life and Messiah invite you to attend a free introductory Hebrew lesson with experienced Hebrew teacher, Melissa Briggs. This group lesson over Zoom is suitable both for those interested in biblical Hebrew and for those interested in modern Hebrew. Melissa is passionate about making the riches of the Hebrew language accessible to everyone. To sign up for this free lesson, all you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. Be sure to sign up today and begin your journey of learning Hebrew. All right, back to our special prophecy edition of Questions and Answers.
0: Carol says, I seem to read that the churches that are mid-trib or post-trib will remain on earth at the pre-trib rapture. Do you
1: agree? Well, churches that hold to a mid or post trib rapture do believe that Christians are going to go through part or all of the coming tribulation period. Uh, while Jesus said we should expect persecution and tribulation in this age, in fact in John sixteen, thirty-three, he said, In the world you'll have tribulation. Uh, but that's not the same as going through the coming seven year period of trouble on the earth. And I say that because as I mentioned just a little bit ago, the entire seven year period is part of Daniel nine, twenty-four to twenty-seven, that prophecy. Where Daniel was told this prophecy is for your people, the Jews, and your holy city, Jerusalem. The focus of the entire period is on Israel, not the church. In the book of Revelation, the church is prominent in chapters 1 to 3, and that's followed then by a scene in heaven in chapters 4 and 5. And then the period on earth that leads up to Christ's return is chapters 6 to 19. And it's interesting to me that the church disappears from the book in those latter chapters. Instead, we read about the 144,000 from the tribes of Israel, two prophets who appear to parallel the ministry of Moses and Elijah and who prophesy in Jerusalem, and a woman clothed with the sun, moon, and 12 stars who matched the dream of Joseph regarding his family in Genesis 37. And my point is that even if churches hold to a mid or post-trib rapture, that doesn't make it a reality. Uh, The Bible has the church taken away from the earth before that period begins. Wilma asks, what biblical
0: significance does Petra have? Will the Jewish people find refuge at Petra during the tribulation?
1: Well, Petra was built by the Nabataeans, who forced the Edomites from their traditional homeland following the close of the Old Testament. Uh, Some do see Petra playing a role in Bible prophecy, and they do so because of passages like Isaiah 34, where God says his sword will descend for judgment on Edom, or Isaiah 63, which describes God coming from Edom with glowing garments. Now, others connect Petra to the New Testament and passages like, uh, well, Matthew 24 or Revelation 12, which picture the Jewish people fleeing into the wilderness during the tribulation period. But here's my problem. The first two passages can also describe God coming to rescue his people by judging their enemies represented as Edom. Uh, The passages don't say Israel will go to Edom. It says God's going to come to Israel from Edom. And the two New Testament passages don't say into which wilderness Israel will flee. It could be the Judean wilderness near the Dead Sea or the wilderness south of Israel in Paran or Zin, where they spent time during the 40 years of wandering. And neither of those would require them to travel to Petra or to Jordan. So we have to say right now it's possible, but we really don't know. Jan says, I heard somewhere that the generation that is alive or
0: born when Israel becomes a nation again, referring in her comment to either 1948 or 1967, will see the return of Christ is there any biblical reference to substantiate this
1: well those who do believe this do so on the basis of Jesus's words in Matthew 24:34. 34 he said there I'll tell you the truth this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened now, the problem is Jesus doesn't connect the promise to the reestablishment of the nation of Israel in 1948 or the reunification of Jerusalem in 1967 the all these things he's talking about refers to the signs that precede his return Uh, And he described those in verses 4 to 33. Uh, Those signs parallel Revelation 6 to 19, and they focus on that coming seven-year tribulation period, uh, that 70th week of Daniel 9 uh, that's still coming. So Jesus is saying that the generation alive when that time begins won't pass away until the events culminate in his return. Now, I believe those events will begin right after God removes the church from earth and begins again to fulfill his program for Israel. And while that could be close, it has not yet begun. The establishment of Israel, the reunification of Jerusalem, other well, they're part of God setting the stage for the end times. But they don't signal that the end time prophecies of Matthew 24 or Revelation 6 to 19 have begun. They're still future. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this special prophecy
0: edition of our question and answer segment. And you don't have to wait any time to get your question to Charlie. Uh, that mailbox of his is open 24 hours a day at the, land and the book at moody.edu. His devotional is next right here. few things are more rewarding than being on vacation in a place that has a view, a really good view. Whether it's uh, an ocean in your case or pine trees in mine, that's the ideal view for me. A room with a view is just just really cool. Charlie, is, is that uh, at all remotely linked to your devotional coming
1: up? Well, it is a room with a view, uh, though I'm not sure if this room is one you'd want to be in in your vacation time.
0: Okay. Well, I'm intrigued now. Hey, welcome back to the Land on the Book, by the way. This is our fourth and final segment, and boy, you don't want to miss it. Charlie, where
1: are we going in today's uh, devotional? Well, we're heading toward Nazareth, but uh, uh, let me let me pick it up as as we get ready to get off the bus. Okay, and well, as you hop off the bus, turn on your headset and make sure your sneakers are laced tightly, and then Follow me on a short uphill hike to the edge of the Mount of Precipice. As we make our way to the top, turn around every so often and look back down the pathway. And as you do, you'll have a nice view of the modern city of Nazareth. The distance from the center of town to our hilltop destination, it's about a mile. Thankfully, our bus brought us most of the way up, and this new walkway makes the rest of the ascent relatively easy. Now, as we hike up the hill, I want you to think back to your childhood, And remember the story of Rapunzel. Rapunzel's the tale of a maiden raised by a witch. Rapunzel was forced to live in a tall tower with no entrance, no doorway, no stairs, only a window. The only way to enter was for Rapunzel to let down her flowing locks of hair from the window. You might remember the words shouted up by the prince who came to rescue her. Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair so that I may climb thy golden stair. Rapunzel was trapped in a room with a spectacular view, but no apparent way in or out. Well, you made it to the top of the Mount of Precipice, but what does this sight have to do with Rapunzel? Well, to answer that question, I want you again to look back at Nazareth. In the time of Jesus, the village of Nazareth was like Rapunzel's tower. It was a town perched on a ridge with a commanding view, but not much else. From here you can see the town was actually nestled in a bowl-like depression near the very top of the ridge. Now turn around and look the other direction. From the brow of this hill, the view out over the Jezreel Valley is spectacular and provides a panoramic sweep of Bible history. Just to our east is Mount Tabor, where Deborah and Barak led 10,000 Israelite soldiers against a force of 900 iron chariots in the valley below. To our south is the Hill of Moray, The town of Nain is nestled on this side of the hill. That's the village where Jesus raised to life a widow's young son. On the other side of the hill is the village of Shunem, where the prophet Elisha also raised to life a woman's young son. And the hill behind Moray in the distance is Mount Gilboa, where Gideon chose his 300 men and where Saul later died in battle fighting the Philistines. To the right of Gilboa is the site of Megiddo, the Bible's Armageddon, which guards a pass through Mount Carmel and Mount Carmel itself then stretches off there to the west. Somewhere on that hill is where Elijah had his contest with the prophets of Baal. As I said, the panoramic view from here is spectacular, but sadly anyone living in Nazareth might have felt as if he or she were trapped in Rapunzel's tower. You see, climbing up to Nazareth from below was as difficult as scaling a tower wall. 18 centuries after the time of Jesus, Mark Twain traveled down the pathway that led from Nazareth to the valley below. Here's his account of that journey. We dismounted and
0: drove the horses down a bridle path, which I think was fully as crooked as a corkscrew, which I know to be as steep as the downward sweep of a rainbow, and which I believe to be the worst piece of road in the geography except one in the Sandwich Islands, which I remember painfully, and possibly one or two mountain trails in the Sierra Nevadas. Often, in this narrow path, the horse had to poise himself nicely on a rude stone step and then drop his forefeet over the edge and down something more than half his own height. This brought his nose near the ground, while his tail pointed up toward the sky somewhere and gave him the appearance of preparing to stand on his head.
1: (laughs) A horse cannot look dignified in this position. So why did God send his son to grow up in this out-of-the-way, hard-to-reach, postage-stamp-sized village of Nazareth? In John 1, Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. When Nathaniel heard the Messiah was from Nazareth, he responded in disbelief. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? It's not that the town had a bad reputation. It had no reputation. It was like saying the Messiah had just been revealed in Bug Tussle, Texas, or Goofy Ridge, Illinois, or Tortilla Flat, Arizona, or Panic, Pennsylvania. Nazareth was nowheresville no historical significance, no geographical importance, nothing. So again, I ask the question, why did God send his son to grow up in such an insignificant, out-of-the-way place? True, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Nazareth, but was born in Bethlehem. That was the town associated with the line of David. Bethlehem was near Jerusalem. Nazareth was in far-off Galilee. So why did God have the Messiah spend most of his time on earth growing up here in Nazareth? Well, the Bible gives two possible reasons. First, remember Herod the Great's plan to kill all the babies of Bethlehem shortly after Jesus' birth? When Revelation 12, the Apostle John lets us know that event had Satan's fingerprints all over it. Satan sought to short-circuit God's program by killing Jesus at birth. And that could be why God sent Joseph, Mary, and Jesus back to far-off Nazareth. It was to protect the Messiah from Satan's evil plans until it was time for Jesus to be revealed to the nation. Much like Moses in the wilderness, Nazareth became the isolated location where God both protected and prepared the Messiah to be the great shepherd and savior. There's a second reason God might have chosen Nazareth, and it relates to Bible prophecy. Nazareth was located in the part of the Holy Land given to the tribe of Zebulun, Jesus grew up in Nazareth in the territory of Zebulun, and his later ministry took place around the Sea of Galilee in an area given to the tribe of Naphtali. These two areas were identified by name with the coming of the Messiah 700 years before Jesus was born. In Isaiah 9, the prophet wrote, In the
0: past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. And a few verses later, Isaiah explains how this will happen. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of
1: Peace. That's an amazing prophecy. And the area where God said the light of his son would shine included Zebulun, the very place where Nazareth was located. So what lessons can we glean from standing here on this overlook? Well, I see two that are crucial for us today. First, we need to remember that God's master plan for our growth and development might lead us to places that don't always seem that significant, at least not on the surface. Moses needed 40 years in the wilderness to master the lessons required to guide Israel to the promised land. And even Jesus, the perfect God-man, needed to spend 30 years in Nazareth before beginning his time of public ministry. Now, here's the point. God's master plan for spiritual growth doesn't provide shortcuts to success. Developing integrity and spiritual maturity takes time, and some of God's best lessons require an extended detour in our own out-of-the-way Nazareth-like experience. Just remember, time with God and away from the crowd is never time wasted. It's time God uses to develop character and to mature us spiritually. And second, standing here on this overlook reminds us that bigger isn't necessarily better in God's view of life. Nazareth was tucked away in land assigned to the tribe of Zebulun, one of the smaller tribal allotments in the north. Nathaniel wondered if anything good could come out of a place as insignificant as Nazareth, apparently forgetting that 700 years earlier, God had already said this very region was where he would reveal his son. Nazareth is a reminder to all of us that nothing is insignificant if God is in it. So whether you're from Bug Tussle, Texas, or Goofy Ridge, Illinois, or Tortilla Flat, Arizona, or Panic, Pennsylvania, or wherever you happen to call home, ask God to show you the lessons he wants you to learn right there, right now. Even if you feel like you're hidden away in your own version of Rapunzel's Tower, ask God to teach you how to lift up your eyes so you can see him and learn to view life from his perspective. Boy, that's great. Thank you, Charlie.
0: That'll do it for the team here at Bug Tussle, Texas. Thanks for listening. For Charlie Dyer, I'm John Gager. The Land in the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.